on time. Let's go. It's going. It's going. Bet. House, tent floor, family. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. All right, good stuff there. And today is the 13th of April. The Christians of Chad rejoice to have a Christian president. The African nation of Chad had been a fruitful field for missionaries. Victor Veery and his wife went to Chad in 1926 under the Sudan United Mission. Their 42 years of ministry resulted in 200, oh my gosh, 258 churches, 168 chapels, 42,000 evangelical Christians, and a typical Sunday church attendance of 62,000. That is a harvest that was, wow. Baptist mid-missions came to Chad at about the same time and had similar results. Christians rejoiced when Chad gained independence in 1960. The first president, uh, Ngarta Tombalbaye, was even a professing Christian. He testified that he had been converted through a Baptist missionary. Before entering politics, he had taught at a Baptist elementary school. Yet, some encouraged caution regarding him, rem excuse me, remembering that he had once been excommunicated from his home church for unchristian behavior. Uh, Tom Balbaye was a member of the Sara tribe, which constituted one-fourth of the country's population. The Sara and other southern tribes had background of spirit worship. The northern tribes were Muslim, and for centuries there had been friction between north and south. The southern tribes never forgot that in the past, northern tribesmen had enslaved some of their people. No sooner had independence been declared than rebel activity began in the north. In response, President Tom Balbaye assumed dictatorial powers. To pacify nationalists, he began an authenticity campaign. The first step was to replace all Christian names with African names. Muslims, however, were allowed to keep their Islamic names. The capital of Chad, former, or I'm sorry, Fort Lamy, was renamed some name I can't pronounce, meaning leave us alone. Simultaneous with the political turmoil, a six-year drought led to starvation for thousands. Next, all citizens were ordered to submit to Yondo, an ancient pagan initiation that included sacrifices to ancestral spirits, circumcision, and a pagan rebirth. Secret ceremonies called for whipping, facial scarring, mock burials, and the use of drugs. Tom Balbaye insisted that bizarre tests of willpower, such as crawling naked through a bed of termites, would also create authentic national unity. The presidential decree was especially enforced in Baptist towns. Apparently, the president was trying to get back at the church that had disciplined him in his younger days. Christians who refused to comply had their homes ransacked and their lives threatened. Some Christian children were taken by force to initiation camps. A pastor who refused to let his sons participate was killed. 
A dozen Baptist missionaries and their families were arrested and deported. All Baptist churches and schools among the Sara tribe were closed. Still, Tambal Baye insisted he was a Christian, explaining that while the blood of Christ atoned for sin, the initiations completed the cleansing. Tambal Baye next set up a state church called the Evangelical Church of Chad, headed by two pastors whom the Baptists had disciplined. Regional committees, each which included a pastor, were set up and made responsible for enforcing the initiations. The committees also sponsored self-accusation meetings in which punishments were meted out. The persecution intensified and many were buried alive with one leg sticking out of the ground. Others were buried with just their heads above ground, leaving them exposed to insects and the insufferable heat. Friends were told that the same would happen to them if they dug them out. Finally, on April 13, 1975, a group of dissident soldiers stormed the presidential palace and assassinated Tambobaye. The persecution ended and the expelled missionaries returned. Today, although the political situation continues to be tense, over one million evangelical believers live in Chad. For Christians in Chad, what were the spiritual implications of participating in the pagan initiations? Can you think of anything in our culture that would be analogous to those initiations? Revelation 21, all who are victorious will inherit all these blessings and I will be their God and they will be my children. But cowards who turn away from me and unbelievers and the corrupt and murderers and the immoral and those who practice witchcraft and idol worshipers and all liars, their doom is in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. Well, you can tell from them citing that at the end that they don't believe in eternal security. But no. uh, that's, that verse doesn't actually mean that you can lose your salvation. I know people take it that way, but that's not what that means. Um, okay, we've got, I think, so one prayer request. Um, Daniel in Ireland just emailed me. Uh, the Jewish guy, we, uh, I'm sorry, my friend Enda in Ireland emailed me, and the guy that he's been talking about, Daniel, um, who's a Jewish guy, uh, he's been trying to convince him about Christ, and then he tells him about Jesus, and the guy gets angry and leaves, but he comes back. And so something is eating at him, and you want to please continue to pray for Daniel, that he comes to Jesus, and Enda to have patience with him as he continues to try to lead him to the Messiah. Um, uh, just as an announcement, somebody sent me a, uh, he does these, like Maya does these Bible Bites on uh, YouTube. This guy has his own channel, and uh, I, I'm not endorsing it because I haven't watched them all. And anytime you endorse something, all of a sudden there's something that's bad doctrine and you get bit by that. But what he did send me was very good. It's a short, he does these short, he calls them Bible Book Shorts, B-I-B-L-E Book Shorts. Type that in on YouTube, and if you like short things, it gives you an explanation of something. He sent one to me. I haven't had time to watch anymore, and I want to this week, but it was very well done because it's like a Bible bite, but he's got neat little graphics that kind of help you through it, and uh, so um, it was very nice of him to uh, send that to me, and uh, I, I thought, you know, check it out, and um, as always, just make sure that the doctrine is correct, but uh, what he did send me was just, it was spot on. It was very, very well done. And uh, like I said, I'm going to try to spend some time doing that. But I wanted to thank him for that because I just, you know, I want people to get into these things. And even if it's just a three or four minute thing like Maya does, or this guy might be five or eight minutes, whatever, it, it's short, it's condensed. And if you're in the Word and you don't have the attention span of a 30 minute thing going on, 
these will help you. And so check it out, and um, uh, there you go with that. Um, let's see here. I have one more thing before we go to prayer. Um, this is from Remy uh, in the Philippines, the lady that took over in place of her husband. Uh, she does a prison ministry now over there and uh, for the ladies, and uh, she's always helping people. She's uh, helped uh, a young girl that was uh, abused. Uh, she's taken her in, takes care of her. And um, anyway, she sent me this. If anybody wants to help with this, let me know. And uh, that's fine. If not, I'm going to take care of it one way or another. But if somebody wants to take it all on, great. If not, um, if you want to give part of it, let me know. And um, on our last visit to the jail, an inmate asked me for financial help as her daughter was going to compete in a gymnastics competition. I totally forgot about it. And then yesterday she called through the jail officer to remind me. She said that her daughter is doing the best she can to live a good life by studying hard and joining gymnastics. Now, this is in the Philippines where her mom's in prison, so she's trying to make something other than that for herself. She could be given a scholarship that will help her continue her studies. Her daughter is now in her second year of high school. She will be competing in a regional competition on April 28th, so that's coming up in a week. Uh, she needs some money for coaching and other expenses. They're looking for 10 to 15,000 pesos, which 15,000 would be the outside. That's $271. I figured that out yesterday. Um, uh, you know, and if you want to give a part of that, great. But one way or another, if we can help this girl to stay on the right path and get into something and eventually, uh, uh, she also sent a solic solicitation letter that was sent to her that she, um, I can send to you if you want to see that. Um, she said any amount would do. They don't care. They just want to try to help. And uh, for Remy, 15,000 pesos is a lot of money, okay? For us, $271 isn't a lot, but just thought I'd throw that out in case anybody wants to help. Um, so we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we certainly pray for Daniel in, the, in Ireland, and we would pray that uh, uh, you would just keep harping on his heart until he finally yields himself to his Messiah, and uh, that would be really wonderful, Lord. We just pray that uh, that would be the case, and we pray uh, for this young lady that needs help in the Philippines, that uh, she will stay on a straight path and not go down a bad path. Uh, obviously, her mother cares enough about that, so we pray for her as well. And uh, we lift up all the missionaries that are out there, Lord, that are doing a faithful job, including those that are in Chad even to this day, telling people about Jesus. Lord, it's so wonderful to know that uh, there are harvest fields that are uh, bearing fruit to this day, even when the world is kind of spinning down into uh, wickedness, there is good that's happening, and it's good to be reminded of that. So we pray for all of the faithful missionaries out there, and uh, those that are unfaithful or that are in cults, we would just pray that you would frustrate them to no end, just keep them from being effective in what they're teaching. But Lord, uh, we pray for this class, and we pray for the uh, doctrine to be right, and if there's anything that is improper or we would pray that you would just help us through that and uh, correct anything that we would say wrong. It would never be our intention to do so. Thank you for the chance to share your word, Lord. What a precious word it is. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we got a couple of folks that come down here about once every two or three months. They just show up out of the blue, drive all the way from uh, the middle of the state. And actually, it's probably more, more than the middle of the state. It's north of there. And, Thursday night, here they are. So it's uh, John and Shauna, and uh, uh, thank you for always making this effort. It just blesses us, and uh, uh, he, he put it on his heart to uh, do something nice for the project. So the back of the truck now is like this with stuff for the projects. Um, uh, yeah, so um, 
I need to talk to you guys maybe about something. Um, I, I won't do it now, but remind me after class. I, okay. If you have any space, are you going to be in the projects on Saturday? Okay, uh, maybe you can help me with something because I got I got hundreds of pounds of scrap metal to get rid of. I mean, I got so the truck is already going to be like anyway. Um, yeah. I, I, anyway, it's all on the back of the truck. If you can take any of it, that would be great, and just bring it down and and uh, wonderful. Okay, uh, so we got that, and uh, uh, are you too? I mean, I, there's yeah. I I wanted to show you the poor girl during class last week. Um, um, uh, we had a girl come to the door and she was uh, she had cut herself and she was uh, I guess at the restaurant or something and she's bleeding and uh, she said does anybody here have a band-aid and we didn't and so we just watched her bleed out on the what's that no we didn't get sued because she didn't even come in the door but uh, we had uh, several people that uh, mentioned they sent me emails don't forget to get a first aid kit and then somebody sent money for a first aid kit so this is First aid only, um, contractor's first aid kit. Yeah, it's, it meets federal OSHA requirements. So there, in case somebody first gets... only. Yeah, so this is it. Know, if you want, you can be the one to break the plastic on it. Or if not, just put it right down there. But we now, we now have a first aid kit. So will it be under the pulpit? I, I think we'll just leave it right there where people can see it. We'll just write down right there. I mean, we've got plenty of room down there, and that way uh, he really wants to open that. I was like, yeah, it's open now. We, we now have an open first aid kit. Time. What's that? Let's see if I can read. Wow. Yeah. Oh, we got talking about reading. we got to do that. We do. we got to do that. Um, we're in uh, two Thessal 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and uh, I think we're in verse 11, if I remember from last no, week. No, we're in 15. 15. Oh, that's right. We went 11 through 14, and now it's, um, it's now, uh, oh, Listen, before we do that, you're, you won't mind this diversion. I forgot that I had printed this out. Okay, I was emailing or messaging with Sergio this past week, okay? And he's always going to this chat GPT to have it do stuff for him because it, it just makes his life easier. The, it, technology is neutral. It can be used for good or it can be used for bad, just like Facebook or anything else. And so he Money. uses it for good. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I said something to him. I just in one of my messages and he said that would make a great joke and two seconds later he thinks I'm gonna have chat GPT see if it will write a joke about what we were talking about okay write a joke about a non-denominational a Jehovah's Witness and a Catholic helping a bleeding woman a non-denominational a JW and a Catholic walk into a bar so that's his that's his thing this is a computer that wrote this. Just as they're about to order their drinks, they, which wouldn't happen because a Jehovah's Witness doesn't drink, but uh, they In notice theory. a woman across the room who's bleeding. They all rush over to help her. The non-denominational starts praying for divine healing, asking God to intervene and stop the bleeding. The Jehovah Witness, concerned about blood transfusions, quickly checks the woman's wrist for a medical ID bracelet to ensure they're respecting her beliefs. The Catholic, meanwhile, starts looking for some holy water to bless the woman and protect her from harm. Just then, the bartender comes over with the first aid kit and says, or we could just use this, folks. Okay, and then it did one more. It, it, it sent a second one. A non-denominational, a JW, and a Catholic are walking down the street when they come across a bleeding woman. The non-denominational says, quick, let's say a prayer and ask for God's healing power. The Jehovah's Witness says, no, we should knock on doors and find someone who knows first aid. 
the Catholic says, how about we use the rosary as a tourniquet and then call an ambulance? And the bleeding woman looks up and says, you know what? I'll just call 911 myself. So, there you go. That's, that's a computerized joke. That, that, that is scary. About five seconds. He puts it in and comes right back. So that, that, that is scary. But anyway, I, because, you know, he had to set the parameters. And so it's had to think it up by itself. So anyway, you see how the world is going very quickly in a bad direction. But it was still funny enough to read you. So um, first aid kit, we don't need to worry about that. We've got a first aid kit. Okay, 2.15. Okay, here we go. I'm going to back up to 13. That's good. 13, and we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you've heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. 14, for you, brothers, came, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches su suffered from the Jews. 15. Who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out? They displease God and are hostile to all men. Oh, yeah, it ends there. This one's not much different. Who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us, and they do not please God. Instead of displease, do not please God. And are contrary to all men. Okay, I know I said this last week without even reading my commentaries that there was a Baptist church that had this verse up there saying this is why uh, the Jews, you know, are out yeah. completely and the churches replace them and they totally out of context. Yeah. But uh, because he just got done saying, uh, you know, um, uh, what a great church they were because yeah. they were just like the ones in Judea. Yeah, like there you go. So it just it, the whole thing was just bad, but. That's on my mind as I read this. Anytime I come to this verse when I'm reading 1 Thessalonians, I always think of that. Context actually matters. We need to keep things in proper context. Anyway, Paul continues his thought with of the previous verse, which we did last week, which spoke of the persecution that the Thessalonians faced. They suffered from their own countrymen, just as the church in Judea suffered at the hands of the Jews there. Okay, so uh, obviously if they suffered in Corinth from the people in Corinth then and the uh, church in Jerusalem is suffering from the Jews down there, it means that there's persecution from both. It's not just the Jews, okay? So it just it's maddening to think, you know, I just I wish people would think things through. Um, oh, and we're get, we got two sermons coming up. We've seen um, uh, the past two, not Resurrection Day, but the, the I, yes, the past two we had um, just one, Benjamin. Benjamin started something, and then that is going into something this week, okay? And then next week, uh, which is the inheritance of Simeon, so it goes Benjamin, Zebulun, Simeon, all form a picture. They're all forming a picture of what God is doing, and it refutes exactly what I'm talking about here, that the church has replaced Israel, okay? Anyway, and we've seen that many other times as well. Now, in typology, it becomes so evident when you see what God is telling you. I know what's coming with Israel. I know they're going to reject me, but I will not reject them. And he gives hints of that in typology. He gives hints of the law ending. And remember the, uh, the uh, five kings that came against them, and they all got hung right? And then they buried him, uh, took him down before sunset. And that was a picture of the five books of Moses. And then we saw the same picture of the entire law, one king being hung, okay? God is showing us things 
types and typologies so that when we get to where we are in the church, we don't have to guess, am I on the right path or not? He's already shown us. We can know 100% for sure that the church has not replaced Israel. I was uh, listening just today while I was driving around to Ezekiel 34 through 39 or so, right in that area. And I don't know how anybody can come to the conclusion that the church has replaced Israel when they're reading Ezekiel 36, okay? He's going to bring them back. He's going to plant them on the mountains of Israel, the mountains that have been desolate for a long time. They've been, you know, belittled by the surrounding nations because look at what God did to those people and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's, uh, I shouldn't say blah, blah, blah about the Bible, but the going on of it how people reject that. That's the blah, blah, blah. Okay, so uh, these people read that and they still say that the church has replaced Israel. Is the church ever going to go to the mountains of Israel and reestablish the land that was long desolate? No, the whole thing is just faulty thinking from the beginning. So I know I digress, but uh, it's just... going forward, yada, yada might be better. Yada, yada. (laughs) Yada yada. Yiddish, right? Isn't that Yiddish? I don't know. That was a Seinfeld issue, it was wasn't it? Seinfeld. Okay, yeah. I, I, okay. I'm sure it's Yiddish. Yeah. Oh, maybe it's. Is it a real word? Okay, yeah. maybe. Yada, well, yada in Hebrew, yada means to know. So maybe they're using yeah, that. You know, okay. you know. Yeah, you know, you know. It could be. Okay, so um, Paul continues his thought of the previous verse, which spoke of the persecution that the Thessalonians faced. They suffered from their own countrymen as the church in Judea suffered at the hands of the Jews there. Okay, expanding on that now, he says of the Jews that it was they, the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets. Paul was a Jew. Jew. Paul, a Hebrew of Hebrews and an Israelite from the tribe of Benjamin, now identified more with the believing Gentiles, but it did not mean that he wasn't a Jew in Thessalonica than he did with his own countrymen according to the flesh. And this is even more poignant because he was once one of those who killed the Lord Jesus. He's saying that they killed the Lord Jesus. Well, he was one of them. He was persecuting the church. He was a part of the people that killed him. He had rejected Christ just as did most of his countrymen. Though he didn't literally kill Jesus, he was a part of the group of people who did. It was they who also, as Paul says, killed their own prophets. That's something that Jesus said of them in several ways throughout the Gospels. The same thing, oh yeah, Uh, the words ring back to the words of Jesus himself when he spoke against the leaders of Israel in Matthew chapter 23, okay? And he says it elsewhere, this is just one of the examples of it, but Matthew 23, and we're gonna go down to verse 29, if we can get this page turned, okay? And it says there, one more page, 25, 26. Okay, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adore the, adorn the mount, monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel 
the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Okay, so um, I could go on, but you get the point with that one. After stating that the Jews had killed both Jesus and their own prophets, he then says that they have persecuted us. And that's all the way through the book of Acts, you see this. We've been going line by line through Acts, and you see it every day as you're reading. They're in Iconium, and the Jews, he goes to the synagogue, and he tells them about Jesus, and the next week they're chasing him out of town. And then he goes to Lystra or Derby or wherever, and they come from Iconium just to persecute him. So, I mean, you're seeing this. There is an enmity against the message of Jesus, against the gospel, against the people that proclaim this. And it is true. It goes on to this day in Israel. Okay? They persecute these messianics. They, they're not nice to them. They do mean things to them. Uh, a couple of them, as we saw in the uh, update a few weeks ago, as they do each year, submitted a uh, resolution that, uh, uh, what was it, that nobody's allowed to uh, uh, speak out their faith in Christ and whatever. I don't remember. Proselytize. Thank you. I'm sure that's what it was. Anyway, they're always doing things like this. They, so uh, this is an enmity that is in them. It has been bred into them over the past 2,000 years. And, uh, you know, it's going to take an act of God himself for that to change. But it will change. Just because this is the case does not mean that God has been unfaithful to his covenant or that he will be unfaithful to his covenant. And we need to remember that. Our unfaithfulness speaking of us or the Jews under the Mosaic Covenant or whatever, our unfaithfulness does not negate God's faithfulness. He will always remain faithful. Okay, so they've driven them out. As noted in the previous verse, it was the Jews who normally incited the original persecution against Paul and those with him as they spoke to the Gentile believers. They would stir the Gentiles up and speak against the gospel causing the Gentiles to then take matters into their own hands. It is a repeated pattern in the book of Acts, which shows the great enmity between the Jewish people and this newly established faith in Christ Jesus. Okay, when I say new, newly established faith, that means that it is, they perceive it as something that has nothing to do with their history, their culture, and their writings. Okay, it is newly established because it is in Christ Jesus, but it is not something that is new in the sense of inventive. It is something that is new in relation to the fulfillment of their scriptures. And they didn't see that, okay? He is the one that had fulfilled and thus nullified the law, okay? He's the fulfillment of their scriptures. They just couldn't see it. They could not accept such a thing was possible, and they riled up against the very notion of it in every possible way. Okay, just this past Monday, I finished my sermon typing, and I need an introduction because the introduction is the last thing I do. After typing the sermon, I do the introduction. Okay, so I needed an introduction, and I had looked at a article just the day before, and I thought that's a perfect introduction to this particular sermon. It's about the, basically, the... I don't want to give away the introduction to a sermon, so I don't want to give too much, but uh, a, a, a Haredi Jew, one of the, you know, the... Uh, guys with the, the hair that's down and they, they're, they're the showy Jews, the ones that are the most pious of all and they call themselves the Hasidim, the righteous. Okay, he wrote a commentary in 
Arts Shiva. Was it Arts Shiva? Um, yes, I believe it was. Uh, the one of the newspapers over there. And um, when I read it, if you listen to what he writes, and I only gave a paragraph or two of it because it was so much nonsense. All you need to do is just say that guy has never read the Bible. That's all you need to do. He's citing things about Moses, about Aaron, about the golden calf, all kinds of things, and he has no idea what he's talking about. Zero. Okay. Um, they have a a thought about themselves that places them way up here in the world, and everybody else down here. Okay. And they, this is the attitude of those people. Uh, I'm talking about the Jews, the uh, the religious Jews, the ones that they don't serve in Israel army. Okay, they don't have to. Instead, they're mandated. Everybody in Israel has to serve in the army for, I think, it's two years. Yeah, okay, but they're exempt. Instead, they can do, like, you know, um, uh, duty on a, uh, uh, what do you call it, an ambulance or something. All right, they do two years, but they, they don't have to do it in the army. And they think that they are better than everybody else in the world. Okay, and when you hear that, just a couple of things, you're just going to say, what are they thinking? So this is the attitude that is going on in Israel even to this day. Okay, they could never accept such a thing as what Paul was talking about or what we, the Gentiles have been proclaiming for 2,000 years. They completely reject it, 100%. And, you know, the unfortunate thing is, this is the problem. Most of the Jews in the world are secular. They don't believe in anything. They're, they're uh, you know, atheists or they're pantheists or they, they'll, they'll pick anything that makes them happy and that's it. All right. But they, they really don't believe in anything. They're just secular Jews. Okay. They look at these people that are the religious Jews as the ones that happen to know what's going on in Scripture. They're the ones that are, you know, they've got it all figured out. Okay. And so if these people are saying those things, these guys have nothing to refute them with because they don't read the Bible at all. They don't know anything about Scripture. So if these people are saying these things, well, that must be true. Get the point? Okay, it's like going to a Catholic church your whole life, and the priest is the guy that knows the Bible, and you don't read the Bible, so whatever he says must be true. That's kind of the attitude there. So uh, you can keep that in mind, is that this is why there's this type of persecution going on. Anyway, um, uh, the Thessalonians were fully aware of the truth of this statement, Okay, because it happened to Paul there as well. He and Silas were literally driven out of the area by the Jews. We're coming to that right now in Acts chapter 16. Okay, um, it's, uh, a matter of fact, I typed uh, just today, uh, he went down to the river and he met Lydia from, right, the projects, Lydia, purple. Okay, and then, uh, so she invited them to their house and then today they're going back down to the river to pray and there's a girl that has a, a spirit that's following them. So that's what I typed today. But this is the part of the Bible now that we're analyzing in Acts that's being referred to right here in 1 Thessalonians. Okay. In rejecting the message of Christ, which says that the law is fulfilled and annulled in him, they became a group of people who do not please God. That's Paul's words. They do not please God. They cannot please God because Christ came to fulfill the law. He came to give up his life in fulfillment of it and to bring them out of the law and into a relationship of grace. And they rejected that. So they do not please God because they cannot please God. Apart from Jesus Christ, it is not possible. Okay, here it is. It is impossible to be saved through the law of Moses. It was given as a temporary system to lead all people to an understanding of their need for Christ Jesus. In rejecting Christ... 
they could not be pleasing to God because Christ, not the law, is God's complete and final means of salvation for mankind. That's it. Jew and Gentile alike. Jesus Christ. There is no other option because he is God's response to the problem of sin. We talked about that in last week's uh, Resurrection Day sermon. Sin, sin, sin. If you can't understand that sin is the problem, then you're never going to understand your need for Jesus Christ. But once you realize that sin is the problem and you see that God has resolved it, then what are you going to do? There's nothing you need to do. He's done it all. People don't like that. They want themselves to be their own saviors before God. So or that they for, want to say that they have never sinned. Well, that's right. Or they want to acknowledge uh, they've never sinned, which is, you know, ridiculous, I talked to a couple of electricians in here today about Jesus, and that was the first thing I asked them. Have you ever told a lie? And they both said, yeah. I said, you know that that's sin. Yes, we do. Okay, so that's, you know, just what you get to do. You get to tell people that that is a problem. Now, how do we resolve that? Okay, so um, uh, Jew and Gentile alike. Uh, thus, because they are not pleasing to God, Paul says they are, his words, contrary to all men. They are contrary to believers in Christ because they have not come to accept that Christ is the fulfillment of their law. Instead, they speak against the Christian faith. Any Jew who comes to faith in Christ is shunned. We see that, as I said. You see it in Israel. You'll see it here. I, uh, what was his name? Stan Telchin. Right? Yeah, he came right to Christ. He wrote books about him. What's that? Right up here. And, uh, he lived in, um, uh, what's it? Uh, just north of Sarasota here. Oh, yeah, yeah, Dan yeah. Did. That's right. Yeah. Great guy. And he came down to church and talked about it. And he had members of his family that wouldn't talk to him because of his faith in Christ. I think, and I may be wrong in this, I think he had a daughter that wouldn't. No, no, she, she brought him to Christ. Okay. Oh, yeah. right. Well, somebody else in the family, there was a long, long you know, gap. And yeah. then finally they were re reconciled. I don't right. know if that person became a Christian or just accepted his faith, but, um, you know, that was years and years ago that he came to talk. But, uh, uh, yeah, you know, this is just the way it is. They pay a price when they come to Christ. And it's not so much that way in the Gentile world, but obviously in Chad it was, mm -hmm. okay, right. as we saw at the beginning of the class. So, um, uh, where was that? They're contrary to all men. They're contrary to believers in Christ. Any Jew who comes to faith in Christ is shunned and is often, here it is, excommunicated from family and friends. They are contrary to all others because they feel that their law, which is actually annulled in Christ, sets them apart from all others. As I said, just a couple paragraphs out of this guy's uh, article in Art Shiva, but you'll see that. They, they, they feel that that is what sets them above everybody else, and that is what makes them God's chosen people, okay? And as Jim often says, chosen for what? For what? If you're God's chosen people, there must be a purpose for you being the chosen people. What is that? And it's all about them. Right. That's the only answer they have because he loves us and he hates everybody else. They are chosen to bring in the Messiah. They are chosen to welcome him home someday. That is their job. When they stop rejecting him as a nation, they will welcome him home. Okay, that is what they're chosen for. They're not chosen to be set above the nations because of who they are, but because of who Jesus Christ is in relation to them. That's the important thing that they have missed. They feel that because of the law of Moses, their sign of circumcision, and their adherence to the Sabbath, that they are righteous before God while all others are unrighteous. Think about that right there. The law of Moses, 
fulfilled in Christ. The sign of circumcision, fulfilled in Christ. Their adherence to the Sabbath day, fulfilled in Christ. And that they are righteous before God while all others are unrighteous. And the irony of it is that they're the most unrighteous of all right now because of their adherence to the law of Moses. Someday that will be changed. I, I pray that will be the case soon. This guy that we prayed for at the beginning of the class, we want him to come to Jesus and to understand the glory of what God has done. Okay, But that is the way it is right now. Thus they are contrary, as Paul says, to all men. They're contrary to all men until they come to Jesus Christ. Okay, life application. Pray for the eyes of all unbelievers to be open to the truth of Christ. And pray for the Jewish people collectively and individually to see their need for the Messiah and to call out to him for salvation. Obviously, that is not going to happen until the tribulation period is over. How do we know that? Because it's told. It says right in the Bible. Okay, that doesn't mean we shouldn't pray for it, though. True. Okay, we should still pray for it. But we know that they are going to have to go through this terrible time on earth because the Bible says it's going to happen. But we should still pray for it. We should pray for God to change hearts now while there's time because there is a time coming on this earth that is not going to be a happy time. My friend sent me an email today and he asked about Isaiah 30, whatever, where it says, I will make man rarer than fine gold, okay? And he said, that sounds like it's speaking of the tribulation period. And I said, that's right. There is a time coming on this earth where man is gonna be scarce, okay? Compared to what it is now. If there's 8 billion people on the earth, okay? Well, say there's six million Jews and two-thirds of them die, that means there'll be uh, uh, two million Jews left, okay? Do you think God's going to treat the rest of the world any differently? So if you have eight billion people and you take out two-thirds of them, you're down to about, what, two and a half billion at the most? I don't know. I mean, it's going to be a terrible time. The amount of death that's going to happen because of rejecting God's offer of Jesus. It's just, it's unbelievable to think about from this perspective you know when you're not in christ you don't look at it that way you look at how mean god is and all that kind of stuff but once you're in jesus and you understand the grace of what he did he didn't have to do it he didn't have to send his son to die for our sins but he did it and then we turn it down anyway we ignore it we reject it we say it's not true we dismiss it because of ten thousand faulty arguments it's our fault I, you know, I, I just, it's heartbreaking to even think about this, but this is where the world is coming, or going to, I guess. Anyway, 2.16 for you. Okay, I'll start the sentence. So they displease God and are hostile to all men, 16, in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come. Upon them at last. Oh boy. Uh, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Okay, it's, it's such a heartbreaking thing to read. But once again, this is the state of Israel and it is the state of the world too. Okay, you know, you can't help but think. I was looking at an article, uh, I think somebody posted it on Twitter. I can't remember. Anyway, this is Resurrection Day, and I, I think it was something on Twitter I saw. New York City in the 1950s on Resurrection Day. Anybody know what was happening? 
all of the buildings in New York City had crosses displayed. Windows. Windows. They turned off all the power in those buildings except crosses all over New York City. Now you can't even say Jesus without somebody being offended. We've got a president, we've got a guy in the White House that literally hates the message of the Bible. He literally hates it. How do we know he hates it? Because every single thing he does, everything is contrary to the Word of God. Everything. It is an actual hatred of Jesus Christ. There can be no other explanation for it. Along with, you know, a love of money, a love of communism, and all the other things that he throws in there, there is a total and complete hatred of Jesus Christ. Okay? And just, what is it? It's 50, so that was 70 years ago. Okay? New York City. Mm -hmm. Probably the most liberal city in the world at the time still was honoring Jesus with their buildings. I couldn't believe it. I'm looking at that and, you know, I probably saw it as a kid and just didn't even think of it. But now, to even imagine that they would do that, it would never happen. Okay? It would never happen. Anyway, in the previous verse, Paul put a heavy blame on the Jews who, as it said, killed both the Lord Jesus and his own prophets. We cited Matthew. Jesus had said that. Paul just confirmed it. Okay? In their actions, he also said they did not please God and they were contrary to all men. One can see the bitterness he felt at their attitude towards God's revelation of himself throughout their history and even to the present time in which he was living. But remember, he's appalled at their attitude, but he had to be called out of that attitude. Remember that, okay? Paul personally had to be called out or he would still be there working against it himself. That shows the grace of God. He called him out to be a light to the nations. Yes, go ahead, or the Gentiles. Romans 9, 3. Yeah, absolutely. Once he realized the magnitude of what Jesus Christ had done, I, I could wish myself accursed that they could be saved. Okay, absolutely. Very, very good. That's exactly right. Paul had to personally be pulled out of that. And that's why Paul said, I can't do anything but boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. I, he has no standing on his own for the grace that was bestowed upon him. It was total, complete grace, and that's the same with all of us, every one of us. Okay, so um, he had this bitterness in them, but at the same time, it was a bitterness about the state of them more than a hatred of them because, as he just said, he would give his own salvation up if he could for his own people. He now, for You know, I heard that about John, too. I read a commentary, uh, one of the uh, lectionaries in the church fathers one time, and uh, it was about John. And one of his apostles, uh, uh, one of his uh, disciples had kind of walked away from the Lord. And the way that they described it, and there's no reason to not assume that this was an accurate account. Somebody was writing an account of John, how he literally chased after this person, begging him, don't go, Christ loves you. He, he, he was willing to give himself up in exchange for this disciple who had just become disaffected. And you, know, you can see the, the, the power of what happened in their lives and how it changed them. And you know, when John writes, he, it's about the love of God, the love of God, the love in the light and the beauty and the grace of Christ. And yet at the same time, you know, he was firm enough to say, well, Diotrephes, when I come there, I'm gonna call him out because, you know, so he was, he was firm against people that were 
that had an agenda against Jesus that were in the church. But at the same time, he understood the weakness of people. And so uh, that's not a biblical thing. I just said it was a lectionary. It was a commentary on the life of John. But uh, if it's true, and like I said, there's no reason to not accept that it was, he was willing to just expend himself to call somebody that was walking away from Christ back to the Lord. Anyway, uh, Paul, he now further explains their conduct toward the apostles and what that means by saying that they, meaning the Jews, were forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles. And that's, you see that all over in the book of Acts. Okay, they're going to have a council when he gets arrested and he's in Jerusalem. They're going to come down and they're going to accuse him of stuff. And it just goes on and on throughout the book of Acts. How that is exactly what was happening. He's writing it to them now and it's going to continue to happen until the end of Paul's life. As noted in the previous verses, this is specifically highlighted time and again in the book of Acts. The Jews doggedly pursued Paul and those with him. They came between them and the Gentiles, stirring up arguments and fomenting every kind of trouble possible for them. Okay, he did it. No matter what he said, they were there to argue against him. And if he established people in Christ and they were happy and content, they'd go to that congregation and say, you were misled. They would do anything to destroy what Paul was doing. Anything. However, the message of the apostles to the Gentiles was so, Paul's words, that they may be saved. These words are speaking of the inclusion of Gentiles in the plan of salvation. In other words, close, uh, I, I'm sorry, in other words, the Jews not only didn't want the saving message spoken to the Gentiles, they didn't even want the Gentiles to know that they could be saved. They were totally contrary to any hint of that. And, you know, they may have known, you know, sometimes people know that something is true and they just don't want to be a part of it. Okay, and they may have known, well, what Paul says is logical, it makes sense, and we're going to reject it, but we don't want those Gentiles to be a part of it because they're Gentiles. It's that attitude I was talking about, that guy that wrote that article. You know, we're the chosen people. They have no right to be a part of anything that God has done. So who knows? This is certainly at the heart of why the Jews riled against the message. They so disdained the thought of the Gentiles being saved by God's grace that they were willing to do almost anything in order for the message to be stopped. Okay, Paul is down in Jerusalem. He gets arrested. There's a great uh, 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 riot going on, okay? They're almost tearing Paul apart while the Roman soldiers are carrying him up the stairs. And Paul says in uh, Greek to the Roman centurion, what does he say? Can I speak to these people? And the guy says, you're a Greek? You speak Greek? I thought you were an Egyptian. So he didn't even know why he was arresting this guy. He just knew that this guy's going to be destroyed if he doesn't get him out of there, and he can take him in and find out why later. So now Paul says, do you mind if I speak to the people? And Paul stops. They let him. He's standing up on the stairs, and he's speaking to the people in Hebrew, or it could be Aramaic. The word can mean either, and it was probably Aramaic because that was the language that the people spoke at the time. Anyway, um, he's speaking to the people in their native tongue. They're listening. They're very quiet. And as he's speaking, there you can just see they're being attentive to everything he said because there's, there's nothing in the commentary of Luke of anything going on except them listening to Paul until he says, what word? Gentile. Gentile. And as soon as he did, it says they started pulling out their hair, throwing dust in the air, screaming, away with them, he's not worthy to live. That is the attitude that Paul had to strive against everywhere he went. The word Gentile. If they're not willing to come into our synagogue and join us, 
they are not worthy of God's grace. That is their attitude. And so that one word had all of them, after all of them listening carefully to his words, hate him. Okay, so um, let's see here. Um, where was I? Okay, um, uh, it meant that there was an ending of their law. If the Gentiles are included in the grace of God, their law is ended and a new dispensation of grace and mercy apart from that law for any who simply believe by faith, Jew or Gentile. The very notion of it seemed incredible and thus impossible to tolerate. And that's been going on now for 2,000 years. They cannot get away from law observance, okay? And we got all kinds of people that are in Messianic congregations all over the place, and I'm not talking about all of them. There's good Messianic churches and there are bad ones, okay? But they cling to the law of Moses. They tell anybody that comes in through their doors that you need to observe the law of Moses. They're doing the same thing. They're just doing it under the guise of being followers of Jesus, okay? They find it impossible to tolerate anybody that doesn't observe the law of Moses when they don't observe the law of Moses. They can't because they don't have a temple in Jerusalem. They don't have all of the things that the law demanded. And so they say, well, we do mitzvot and we do this and that, and that'll take care of it. No, it's it, James makes it perfectly clear in his epistle. If you violate one part of the law, you've broken the law. So uh, what they're doing is, it, that to me is probably worse than the Jews who simply haven't understood that Jesus came to die for their sins. These people have rejected it and then they've rejected it again and they're forcing it on people that are coming into their congregation under the guise of being followers of Christ. So to me, that's like a double slap in God's face. Anyway, whatever. Paul continues by saying that the striving of the Jews only brought trouble upon themselves. The result was his words always to fill up the measure of their sins. The words here need to be understood properly. They literally mean unto the filling up. There is a certain amount of sin that the Jews could expect to be dismissed by God through his grace and mercy. But there is a point in which that amount would be filled up and beyond which only destruction could be the result. Let me see. Um, yeah, uh, let me read this and maybe I've got something to add to it. The same concept is true with, yeah, here it is, any given nation, church or person there is a point where sin finally fills up to its measure and then only wrath can be the inevitable result we know this is true because the amorites were abraham was told that the amorites what had go ahead 400 years till the measure of their sins was filled up and so during those 400 years where god was going to give them grace give them a chance to live their lives, turn to God, whatever they were going to do, their sins had not been filled up. And so he told Abraham when he gave him the promise, in 400 years, your people will be strangers in a foreign land, okay, until the sins of the Amorites have come to their fullness or have been reached or whatever. I don't remember the exact terminology. And we see this again elsewhere, that the shed blood in the land, there is no atonement for it, and eventually it becomes a point where God must judge the land, okay? And so, it doesn't matter who it is or what nation it is, there is a point where God dismisses that, and he says, I understand the inclinations of the human being, and they're just going to lie every day when they wake up, and you know, that's the way it is. I don't tolerate that, but at the same time, if I didn't allow it to continue, there wouldn't be any people at all on the planet, 
but there is a point where this group or this nation, I will no longer tolerate anything that they're doing and destruction will come. Now, if you think about that, if you think about that in the world today, it's very hard to imagine how God has withheld his judgment. I, it's, it, it, there, there has to be a point very soon where this is going to end. Now, like I said, I'm not a, a speculator on the rapture. That's not my kind of thing. But it is just as obvious as the nose on your face. When there's blood in the streets, children being killed by the, by the millions, okay? And this isn't just here. It's all over the world. We just see it because we're in America. We see how bad things have gotten in such a short amount of time. But the whole world, euthanasia, it goes from one country to the next to the next. And by the time it gets to this country, the first country is allowing children to go in and say, I don't want to live. So there's a point where this cannot continue. Whatever God's point is, it's coming. That's all, there's no doubt about it. So this is what Paul is saying concerning his people of national heritage. They had filled up the measure of their sins and he knew, as he says, that wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. He knew this because Jesus said it to them. He gave them the sign of Jonah. It's not three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, okay? The sign of Jonah is the preaching of Jonah to Nineveh. And what did he say to Nineveh? 40 days. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. And just as the Bible does again and again and again, he did it in numbers with the spies. He did it with Ezekiel and Ezekiel 4. You'll see it elsewhere as well. A day for a year, a day for a year. And he was saying yet 40 years and Israel will be destroyed. That was what he was telling them. This is the sign of Jonah, okay? A day for a year. The sign of Jonah was 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Nineveh did what? They repented and they were not destroyed. Jonah had a pity party. Nineveh was saved, okay? Israel was given their chance. They didn't accept it and they were destroyed. They lost their temple. They went into exile, which has gone on for 2,000 years, but they're back in the land. The mercy of God, it, it knows no bounds. And it, that's what makes it so hard to understand replacement theology to me, is because it's as if they really don't understand the covenant-keeping nature of God and the mercy of God in Christ. They don't get it, okay? Anyway, Paul knew that the time had come, that Israel had rejected Christ, and that there was no remedy left for the nation. Hence, okay, if there's no remedy left for the nation and they are under the law of Moses, right? Anybody disagree with that? They were under the law of Moses. It is the covenant that was made with them, with God. What does that covenant say? It says it in Deuteronomy 28 and in Leviticus 26. He is going to punish them. And yet, he says that he will restore them. That is as clear as the nose on your face. We cannot say the Jews are getting what they deserve by being punished and now they're replaced by the church because he says very clearly, especially at the end of Leviticus 26. Let's read it, okay? This is exactly what's going on. People love to miss this and then they come up with their, their uh, analysis, which is not correct. Leviticus 26, he says, don't do these things, do this, I am the Lord. And then he starts telling them, if you don't do this, this is gonna happen to you. Okay, and he goes through all these terrible, terrible things that he is going to do to them if they don't pay attention. It goes on. If you don't, I'll punish you seven times for your sins. Okay, goes on and on. Uh, but, verse 40, if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me, 
and that they have also walked contrary to me, and that I have also walked contrary to them, and have brought them into the, into the land of their enemies. If their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant. Now, pay careful attention to this. God says there is a point where if they humble themselves, and they haven't done it yet, they are back in the land by his grace, but they have not humbled themselves yet. Okay, but it says, uh, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham. I will remember. Okay, the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob started where? With Abraham. Okay, with Abraham. That's the covenant. All right, so he's appealing to the covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He just went backwards, okay? But it started with Abraham, Genesis 13, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, he talks about it, okay? I will remember the land. The land also should be left empty by them, and it will enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. They will accept their guilt because they despised my judgments and because their soul abhorred my statutes. Okay, what does it say about the Gentiles in the New Testament? We are sons of who by faith? Abraham. So the church could say, well, see, that's speaking of the church. We replaced Israel. And that's what Moses is appealing to here, or the Lord is through Moses. You could maybe guess that, right? Maybe. Let's keep going. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, nor shall I abhor them to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant of their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their God. So he didn't just appeal to Abraham. He appealed to who did he bring out of Egypt? Israel. He didn't bring us out of Egypt. This covenant wasn't made with us. This was made with Israel. I am the Lord. There's no way to get around that. I'm sorry, you can, you can spiritualize the first one. Oh, the covenant with Abraham includes us. Maybe. It does not include us when he says, I brought them out of Egypt. So, there you go. Remember that when these, these people come at you with their uh, replacement theology and just say, I'd like you to explain this to me. And set them up first with the Abraham one. Go slowly say, well, what does that mean? And there, somebody, if he's astute enough, will say, well, we're sons of Abraham by faith. Okay, well, what about this? Watch him stammer. Okay, um, the cup was full. The wrath had been ordained. Right there, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28. I was preaching on the Deuteronomy 28 sermons. Okay, the Leviticus 26 is the Lord in the first person. I will do these things. And then in uh, Deuteronomy 28, Moses says that the Lord will do these things, okay? When I was preaching on Deuteronomy 28, somebody that was sitting closer to the front of the church was weeping at what the Lord said he was gonna do to Israel. And this was the last person on the planet I would have expected to see this. Read those words and think about the tragedy that came upon Israel okay the tragedy that came upon them it's a self-inflicted wound and yet it's not the end of the story okay so uh, the matter of time before the wine would be poured out we know it happened in AD 70 
This would be realized at the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and the dispersion of the nation to the four corners of heaven. Life application. The law of Moses told the nation of Israel what they could expect as they, excuse me, heaped up sins against God. Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 give exacting details of what the Lord said he would do to them. These things were fulfilled once in the Babylonian exile and the second time in the Roman dispersion. However, God promised restoration for Israel after their time of punishment. It doesn't matter if they deserve it or not. What matters is what God has promised. How terrible that Christians ignore the decision of God because of their hatred of the Jews. God has spoken, God has performed, and so we simply need to accept what he has done and watch as history unfolds marvelously before our eyes. What a wonderful thing that even in their time of destruction, God has not forgotten them. Not forgotten them. Yes? You betcha. You know, but you, you want to hear some crazy thinking. Take the time to do this, okay? Watch a analysis of Romans 9 through 11 by a replacement theologian and shake your head. You won't believe it. It's actually, you know, it's actually beneficial to see these things because then you can understand their thinking and then you can develop an argument against them, which you can't do if you don't know what they're thinking. But take the time sometime. I, there's a guy that you mentioned one time. Um, I wish I could remember his name. And uh, you said, oh, he, he wrote this great thing. And I said, yeah, he, he re he's a replacement theologian. You said, what? And uh, it's somebody that's still alive today. And uh, just, I wish I could remember because I heard his talking on uh, Romans 11. And I thought, how can somebody so intelligent come to such an erroneous conclusion? He loves the Lord, obviously, but completely, completely wrong on his analysis of it. I, it it's a name that if I heard it, I, it this quick, it's just, anyway, um, uh, it'll come to me two o'clock this morning, unfortunately, and I won't be able to get back to sleep, but, but the what? Don't text yeah. Don't get your cell phone. Yeah. yeah, don't text me. Okay, yeah, that's right. Uh, my, my text receiving device is broken. Okay, uh, we're in 217. We are, but first. Yes. You know, the whole replacement theology thing, it really doesn't hurt us. No. It, but it, it actually, and to focus on that to try and defend against them, it's really pointless. Yeah. What I would say is like that needs to be what's told a Jew who doesn't understand absolutely even even the ones that are like well you know they're I don't read the Bible I don't know I'm a, I'm a Hindu whatever it's like read this and tell me what this tells you yeah and like you know and what what has happened and what you know and then you've got it from two, two angles from Mo, Moses absolutely and then you've got history backing it up backing it up. up and then they're back in the land so it's absolutely like, uh, yeah they need they need to be evangelized from their own scriptures because that's where Paul evangelized everybody from. Yeah. All of them. That's all they had was that. That's what he was yeah. talking about. Absolutely. And then he said, and this is how Jesus has fulfilled that. But if he needed to appeal to their destruction, he would go back to their own writings and right. say, this is coming. So absolutely. You know, the Jews need to hear about Jesus. But if you're going to speak to them about it, there has to be a common denominator between the two of them. Right. And that is their own scriptures. Right. Listen, this was prophesied in advance. Everything about Jesus is said to be, but you know, when you get to the part about the new covenant, somebody emailed me a week ago and I said, well, you know, 
tell him about the new covenant. It says there in Jeremiah, and he, how did he say it? Anyway, he, the guy had already rejected that. He says, well, you know, the rabbi says, and oh, yeah. so anyway, it's very, very hard to break through that, but it can be done. You, you know, probably the main thing is to just pray for these people individually. When you know that they need them, just bring up their name to the Lord, and, and he's going to make the divine, uh, you know, intervention by sending somebody into their life that's you know maybe more eloquent than you or me eventually the lord will He'll break down he, right. he he can do anything so but One, boy that's a tough nut to crack last thing too you you i didn't i never knew what yada meant that's something like that's interesting knowledge what does goyim mean goyim is gentiles that's it just, that's it just gentiles. It, it can be translated various ways goy means nation or gentile but at times the word is used when speaking of the Jews, okay? Oh, yeah. And so it, it's nations, mm -hmm. all right? But the context will determine it, right. okay? So we don't want to just say Gentiles all the time because sometimes it doesn't mean Gentiles, it means nations. If it includes Israel, and then there are times where you can almost see that the Lord is poking at them by using that word of them. Right. So, you know, you are You're the Goyim, right? So. But, well, it doesn't mean that, but it does mean that. Okay, so um, anyway, that's all that means. It means nations or Gentiles, but like I said, and I think that's coming up in a sermon here or maybe in a, a commentary. Uh, anyway, um, I, I typed something about it within the past couple weeks. So, oh, I keep putting that down. We got to do 217. Do, so, here yep. we go. Well, Acts 16, he says, the Lord opened her heart. You're talking about... Oh, yeah, that's the one I typed this morning. Okay. <laughs> or Wait, that was yesterday. Okay. The one I typed this morning was the spirit of uh, the, the girl. So oh. tell me tell me what your take on that is, because I actually type, I talk about that in the commentary. What does that mean? What, he opened her heart? Yeah. Well, he simply wanted to enlighten people. But how did he do it? Through because... Paul's, through Paul's explanation of the... There you go, I cite Cambridge on that. Cambridge says that only the Lord can open the person's heart to be receptive to uh, uh, the message of Jesus. And in other words, it's a Calvinistic attitude that the Lord has regenerated that person in order to believe right, so that right. they can believe. And But the, the verse itself tells you what happened. Okay, and I talk about it in detail, but I'm glad you brought that up. Um, it's Acts uh, 16. Give me one second here. Um, oh, I've got to go further back. Acts 16. Um, uh, no, it's like 13. Hang on. They're by the river. Something that says she was a seller. And Okay, 15. And when she and her household... Oh, 14. Um, now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Okay, go back to the previous verse because you could say to heed the thing spoken by Paul means that the Lord regenerated her so she could believe the gospel. But what does it say? In verse 13, and on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where a prayer was customarily made and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. They spoke to the women. So the speaking to her is what opened her heart. It wasn't an active zapping of the Lord. It was a passive action of the Lord through his word. And this is where the fault of replacement, I'm sorry, um, uh, Calvinists, Calvinists. Predestination. Yes, predestination come in. They say that the Lord actively did that. He didn't actively do anything. He actively gave us the word, and now he passively, through the word, changes our heart. 
and that's why it says faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. That's how it happens. It doesn't happen by God saying, I'm going to regenerate you, so after I do, then you can read the Bible and find out about my son. Okay, that doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. This is what changes us. And then when we hear that or we read it or we, however it's communicated to us, we see it in a gospel presentation, our hearts are changed. The Lord opens our heart through his word and Paul is speaking the gospel and she receives it. It's right there in black and white. But people reject that, and they come up with these crazy things based on John 6, 44 or whatever, where it says, no one can come to me unless the Lord draws him. Well, how did he draw him? He just got done in chapter 5 telling exactly how he did it. The whole chapter is about coming to Christ through his work. You search the scriptures, but because you think they, in them you have eternal life, but they are what speak of me. And he says it again. You believe in Moses? You don't believe in Moses, because if you did, you would know that he wrote of me. He tells them. That's what John 6 is based on. And so the Calvinists just dismiss that and they say, oh, it's actively coming to into a person's heart and changing them. When it's not, it's explained right there in the whole passage. And then from there, I always ask them, I, I, anytime I see somebody post this, like on Twitter, they'll, you know, nobody can come to the Father except as he's drawn by me. And see, you can't believe unless the Lord changes your heart first. I always say, well, what comes after, uh, or where does John 12 come? Is it before or after John 6? And they always say, what do you mean? I said, does chapter 12 come after or before chapter 6? And they say, oh, it's after. Well, then go read John 12. It says, when I am, draw when I am lifted up, I will draw. draw all men to myself. And then they don't know how to respond to that. They got to go back and ask their Calvinist pastor. So anyway... It makes no sense what they teach, but anyway, you got me riled up with that one. I'm glad you did, though, because it's it's just ah. Now, where were we? Were we in the middle? Okay. Oh, you haven't read it. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, I don't know. Bert, Bert got me going, and I once I get going with that. Ah. No, 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 no. I you got me going. It's my fault. I'm the one that got going. I and I did say I appreciated it because I'm glad you did that. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Brothers, you know, Rick does that to me all the time. Oh, it's my fault. Or yeah, there he is. <laughs> no, they... okay, go ahead. But you sure? Yeah. Okay. But brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. Okay. Now, what they did in that translation is they did. Um, you've got a direct translation. You've got a paraphrase. You've got e uh, dynamic equivalents. Different, different attitudes of translating the Bible. And just, uh, it says there, not in... Not in thought. Okay, well, this one says not in heart. Uh -huh. Well, heart in the Bible means thought, okay? The heart is never used as the pump that beats blood through the body in the Bible. It is the seat of reasoning. And so when they do that, they have, instead of using the word directly translated, they go to what the meaning of the word is. Nothing wrong with either unless you're a King James only person. But if you're not, it's fine. It's explaining the meaning of the word. Anyway, we'll read it again. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Okay, so there you go with that. And 217. Paul has been speaking to 
of the Jews who had been opposed to the gospel message and who had done their best to keep him and those from him with him from sharing it with the Gentiles. After his thoughts about them, he now says, but we. So he's contrasting his group with the Jews, okay? The words are, yes, are said in contrast to what he said about them. Instead of fighting against getting the message to the Gentiles, their longing was not only to share it with them, but to continue fellowshipping with them. He deemed them as brothers united in Christ, not as Gentile sinners who were unworthy of being fellowshipped with, okay? It, it's so wonderful. You know, you go back and read Galatians 2. We won't because we read it so often, but it, it, it's so wonderful that here he is. He's in Galatia. Peter shows up. He starts withdrawing himself from the Gentiles because the Jews from Jerusalem have come down. And who does Paul defend? The Gentiles. He says, you are in error. You're the one that is not right in this situation against the great apostle Peter. Okay? Paul, he was a straight shooter. What a, You know what? There are times where I, I just, I, I'm not the best communicator of the gospel. You know, somebody starts arguing their own opinion and I just kind of shut up and I just, I don't want to argue with people. Paul didn't mind. He, he stood right up and he defended everything openly. To me, sometimes it's just like, you know, I'm not getting anywhere with this person. I'm just, I'm done. But I, I don't think Paul would ever be done. I think he just would stand there all day and argue with people about, you need Jesus and what you're saying is wrong. And oh boy, I don't know. Anyway, um, uh, continue fellowshipping with them. He deemed them as brothers united in Christ, not as Gentile sinners uh, who were unworthy of being fellowshipped with. He then continues on with the word, brethren. It is his way of identifying himself with them personally. He has actually set up a partition between himself and the unbelieving Jews, and he has united himself and his associates with these Gentiles. The bond with them is stronger than his previous bond to his people of national origin. As brethren, he says they have been taken away from you for a short time in Presence. That's his words, been taken away from you for a short time in presence. Here he chooses a word, aporphanizo, which is found nowhere else in scripture. It literally means bereaved. It is as if they had left the Thessalonians defenseless as orphans. This then is a return to the metaphors uh, of verses 7 and 11. Remember he used mother and father, okay? First he started with mother, and then he says, as a father. Well, now he's saying that he was left them bereaved. They had no parent at all because, you know, he's uh, had to move on. In this state, he then uses a strong term to define the time of their separation. The words, for a short time, are literally for time of an hour. It is his way of defining the time of separation exactingly as if they counted the minutes that they had been separated, just as parents would when separated from their children. If you've ever had a child out on, you know, okay, you can go out tonight, it's your first night out, and they're with their car, and they don't come home, the minute that they are supposed to come home, you are worried. Anybody here disagree with that? Okay, I, I can't. I remember my son just driving me absolutely ballistic when he was that age. He, you know, my daughter, it's funny about Tangie and Thor. My son, he went through that period that guys go through, and it was just like constant. It was just constant. And my daughter was, 
the sweetest little girl. She was so wonderful until you got the deep thrust. The sword went right through your body. Ugh! There was nothing left. And then she wouldn't do it for like a year. And then all of a sudden, ugh! Whereas my son was just this little, you know, like knife or something. Poke, 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 poke. So, but it doesn't matter. If it's a big one or a little one, the minutes turn to hours. And that's what Paul is saying. It was to the hour. He's just waiting to be with them again. So it is his way of defining the time of separation exactingly, okay? There was a longing to return and see their beloved face to face, okay? However, he then notes that this bereavement was not in heart. Though they were separated because of the enmity of the Jews, the hearts of Paul and his associates remained united with their beloved brethren in Thessalonica. Because of this heartfelt and brotherly bond, he says that they endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Paul just longed to see them again. He felt terrible leaving them. He wanted to be with them when they were gone, and he just wanted to see them again. He just wanted to be with his beloved church. So, wonderful. Uh, the time of their separation did not result in out of sight, out of mind. Instead, it resulted in distance makes the heart grow fonder. Their hearts were truly longing to return to Thessalonica and to be united in personal fellowship once again. Life application. If you are a part of a church which has missionaries being supported by you, remember them in your prayers and also remember them with a blessing in the mail once in a while. They are certainly lonely at times, frustrated often, and desiring to reunite with those they love. And yet, they continue on because they have a duty which is more important than any other. Be mindful of them and be sure that they know that they are appreciated. This is what we should do with that. Paul asked the Thessalonians to remember the conduct that he and those with him displayed and which they personally saw for a particular reason. Oh, you know what? I'm, I went to the wrong page here. Hang on a second. Um, 17. Give me a second. I've, I've got a page out. I see what I did. I printed uh, 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15. Again, I must have hit the printer twice. So I apologize about that. Appreciate Okay, I can take all these and chuck them. There, that's recycle. Okay, we're in 218 now. We are. Yeah, sorry about that. I'm glad I checked that because there was no, no number. I wonder how that happened because I printed three pages again. Huh. I like what you said there. Send them a letter. Not an email. You can't put money in an email. Well, that's true. You can't put money in any. E well, nowadays you can. You got PayPal and, and Zelle and all these different things. But yeah, I, if you're gonna if you're gonna acknowledge somebody once in a while, send a letter. You know, it's just nice. It, it, you know, there's a lady. So nice. Well, it is. You can, I remember when I was, and this is back when everybody wrote. You know, they didn't have email. Was it? Well, yeah. But what I'm saying is, when I was in the Air Force. It, everybody wrote because they didn't have email and it was still really nice wasn't it you get a letter from home it was so you know phone call is always great don't get me wrong I love to hear their voice but to get a letter it's something that you can read again and you can read again you can smell it and say oh they had this for dinner last time mean, whatever it just a, 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 well no that never happened <laughs> hey listen if I if there was durian on it you would know it buddy oh, okay yeah, well, that or it got shipped with a body. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, that, that's yeah. possible. Yeah. Hey, I had a friend who committed to my first three-year term. 
she would send me a note every week. Wow. How nice. And How nice. It made the whole week. I have a card out there with scripture and encouragement wow. to see every day. And wow. I look forward to the next one. Yeah, that that's pretty special. Yeah, you know, it's, it's little things like that that make life nice. You know, if you have time uh, and letter writing takes a long time. I mean, it's not something that you can just whip out in a second. I, at least me, I'm the slowest writer on the planet, but you know, if I get time to write somebody, I will do so because to me it's important. You know, you want to acknowledge people and emails. Sometimes you just have to send an email. I, I'm so busy. I just, I don't have two seconds, but you know, if you can get up 15 minutes earlier to write letters, that's a good thing or whatever. Um, it's possible. Anyway, um, and 18? as uh, yeah, eighteen miles. Well, we got. Let's see here. We've got. I don't know. Let me see how long this is. Yeah, we can. It's only one page. We're going to do that, and I think that'll be four verses today. So that'd be good. Go ahead. For we wanted to come to you. Certainly, I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. Okay. This one says, therefore, uh, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. Okay, hindering and stopping is not the same thing. No. No. Okay, here we go. Um, this verse begins with, therefore. It is based on Paul's state sentiment that he and those with him greatly wanted to see the faces of those in Thessalonica. The words, we wanted to come to you, are in more than just a conditional tense. Instead, it was their full intention to come, and they had meant to do so. Paul then places a stress on the thought by saying, even I, Paul, time and again. The use of his name here in no way implies that the others were less intent. Rather, as the author of the letter, he is showing the intensity that he felt. That is then transferred to the others in what is known as an epistolary plural. It is where one speaks for all just as he did at his introductory comments in verse 1-2. In this case, the singular I speaks for the whole. His further stress, time and again, shows that it wasn't just one attempt to return and then the attempts ended, but that they had made a real and concerted effort to make it back to their beloved brethren. However, despite their attempts to return, Paul says Satan hindered us. He doesn't elaborate on what this means, and so only speculation can be made. However, for the Thessalonians, he simply leaves the reason with these words alone. Satan is a word which any Jew among them could explain the meaning of, but it is a word which does not necessarily mean the devil himself. It could simply be a written personification of that which is opposed to God. In other words, the word Satan in Hebrew does not necessarily mean Satan. If it's prefixed by the article in the Old Testament, Ha-Satan, it will speak of the devil. But guess what? The first use and other uses, uh, we'll just go with the first one. The first use of the word Satan in the Bible is referring to who? The Lord. It says the Lord stood as an adversary to Balaam as a Satan. Surprising, isn't it? Because it is not Hasatan, it is Satan, adversary. That's all that means. And so, Paul, you have to be careful what he is saying here because somebody may translate with a capital S and that may not have been his intent. 
anyway, so you see, um, uh, and you'll see that elsewhere. Um, it's where one of the big errors in thinking is in uh, concerning uh, David when he uh, uh, does the census, remember? And it says in one, it says the Lord hindered or the Lord, oh, how does it say it? It's in one Samuel something, uh, two Samuel, it says uh, that the Lord, uh, you know, did something to David. And then in Chronicles, it says, and Satan stood up against him as an adversary, right? It doesn't say that at all. It says Satan. It doesn't say Ha-Satan. So there's no contradiction between the Lord and Satan because it's already got the precedent of Satan in Balaam, the account of Balaam, okay? There's no contradiction there. It is the Lord who did it. He stood up as an adversary against David, okay? So people come up with all kinds of reasons why uh, it doesn't say what it does, and all they need to do is read the Hebrew, okay? So anyway, um, uh, Satan hindered us. Uh, it is a, a word which does not necessarily mean the devil himself. We've got to be done in three minutes. It could simply be a written personification of that which is opposed to God. Paul does speak elsewhere of personal fallen spirits that hinder believers in their actions, who pull them away from their faith in Christ. But that does not necessarily mean that he is referring to Satan in this way now. Oh, here it is. In the Old Testament, from which Paul draws his theology, the term Satan is used when speaking of a man on several occasions. It also speaks of an actual entity, especially in the book of Job. Therefore, as Vincent's Word Studies notes, it is clear that Paul, here as elsewhere, employs the word in a personal sense. But any attempt to base the doctrine of a personal devil on this and similar passages is unsafe. Vincent's Word Studies. This does not mean that Vincent is arguing against a personal devil but he is arguing for the term to possibly be applied in a broader sense of that which is opposed to God. It can simply be wicked people who are hostile to the spreading of the gospel. He could be speaking of the Jews. Satan, the, you know, the accuser stood against us. He hindered us. He stopped us, according to that one. That could be what he's referring to. We have no idea. And this is exactly what Paul referred to, uh, yeah, referred to earlier in this chapter. Okay, he said the same thing. He said Satan hindered us. It does not mean that it's the big S. It could be just an adversary came against them. Okay, life application. There is a whole world full of enmity to the message of the gospel. People will do pretty much anything to stop its spread. And yet, in that persecution, the message spreads even faster. All right? The death of the saints is tragic but their eternal life will infinitely overshadow their temporal loss. Be strong if you are facing persecution. Good times lay ahead. Oh, that's a great way to end it when we read this earlier. What a great way to end that. Say that again because I did not hear what you were saying. Okay. Every encumbrance on us? Yes. Hebrews 12, 1. Oh, yes. Set aside every encumbrance. Absolutely. And Very good. That so easily besets us. Yep. Satan's yep. Satan is crap. there. He's working on us. He's trying to get us you know, frustrated. And uh, it, absolutely. Very, very good point there. Um, uh, I had something else to tell you. We've got two more minutes. Is there? Uh, I can't think of anything. Um, oh! How about this? You asked about 7-Eleven. We had a dumpster fire this morning. Almost burnt 7-Eleven down. Yeah, last night somebody threw a battery in there 
and uh, caught the uh, dumpster on fire. The whole top was melted off, and uh, uh, yeah, and the flames. Uh, there was a guy that was there. It was like three in the morning or two in the morning or something. The flames were apparently because the wind was so strong from the east yeah, in the past couple right. days. It was actually getting onto the building, and the fire people, like three fire trucks, wow. showed up, and it just in time. So yeah, great stuff. Anyway, that little excitement at Seven Eleven, and this morning I'm out there picking up. There was so much garbage. It was the worst day of the year. It's like the people said, we're just going to destroy this place one last time. So I'm out there picking it up. And after I'm all done, I go out back. Betty comes running out. And she says, Charlie, Charlie, what size shoes do you wear? She says, people keep asking. Yeah, she, she says, people keep asking. They want to buy you shoes. And I said, well, that would be a big waste of money. And she says, well, I have to tell them something. I said, tell them they're wasting their money. And because she says it happens all the time. Can we buy that guy some shoes? And she always says, no, you know, he, he doesn't wear shoes. And she said, but these people keep insisting. And so she comes out there. I said, just tell them they're wasting their money. I don't need shoes. The what? I've got, he gave me a pair of nice sandals. No, they're nice. They're, they've got all of the tread on the bottom of them. Saturday. That's true. The only or or when I have to go into a store. Seven times longer than anybody else's shoes. There you go. Well, she asked me, "Do you have shoes?" And I said, "I have a pair that were issued to me. We got one minute that were issued to me in 1984 by the U.S. Air Force, and they're as new looking as the day I got them. And I wear them anytime I do something special. That like when I got ordained or you know whatever, I always wear those. Other than that, I got no need for shoes. Anyway, Heavenly Father. Thank you so much for the chance to come and to look into your word and to uh, explore its wonderful mysteries. What a great word it is. And Lord, we're excited about Sunday. There's just wonderful pictures of Christ coming up again and uh, just marvel in your word all the time that's leading us to a, a more perfect understanding of you, of what you're doing and what you are going to do for your people. And we don't even deserve it. It's just a mark of grace from you. So thank you for that and help us to appreciate it all the days of our lives. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we'll say goodbye to these folks right now and then turn this off. I know there's no sound, so see a good break.